As I invite our speaker to come, I'll mention just especially for those who are uh, new with us, Jason Parker is a pastor, pastoring faithfully in the Colorado Springs area. Got to go for a walk with him today, found out he does have some Minnesota connections in that his father attended Pillsbury. Uh, Without much more said at all, Brother Parker. Yes, amen. Thankful to be back in Minnesota, although I I must admit as a native, I'm partial to Colorado, but (laughs) good to get back up here and uh, I've certainly enjoyed getting to know you folks. As we get into our uh, third evening session of the conference here, um, we're going to pick up where we left off last night, and I'll do just a, a tad bit of introduction here as well for those who are just joining us tonight. Um, As we walk through these things, just like last night, if you have a question or would like to ask something, feel free to raise your hand even in the middle here. I'm actually more concerned to uh, talk about it with you than I am to get through all the material uh, that I have. Because as you can see, part of my um, objective in this is really just to uh, set a trajectory, you might say, lay some foundation and get our thinking going in the right direction. The applications of this will be innumerable. Uh, they will expound throughout all of life. But um, hopefully we're laying a good foundation here in learning how to think, the way to think, not just what to think, but a whole way of, of receiving God's revelation in light of the triune God as he's revealed himself in Jesus Christ so that we, uh, our lives are conformed to him. And that really is what conservatism is as I wanted to talk about it in this, uh, in this conference. It's the spirit enlightened recognition that Christ is the way, the truth and the life. No man comes to the father, but by him. And so if we're going to foster conservative Christianity, we need to be true to that. We need to hold fast to the one way to the father, Jesus Christ, uh, for those who are not here at the beginning, I asked it this way, what would it look like to live a life such as is described in the hymn attributed to Patrick of Ireland? Christ with me, Christ before me, Christ behind me, Christ within me, Christ beneath me, Christ above me. Christ to the right of me, Christ to the left of me, Christ in my lying, Christ in my sitting, Christ in my rising, Christ in the heart of all who think of me, Christ on the tongue of all who speak to me, Christ in the eye of all who see me, Christ in the ear of all who hear me. So we're sketching in the path here of fostering conservative Christianity. We worked our way via thinking about our triune God and his revelation of himself in the person of Jesus Christ to the Nicene Creed and the definition of Chalcedon as very helpful outworkings. We're, we're in effect taking these early Christians as examples of conservative type thinking. What are they doing? They're working out what this means to hold fast to Christ. They're seeing all of life and all of reality in terms of him and conforming their lives to that. Uh, so, by the way, once again, if you would like to look at that, just uh, have an idea of what it's saying here. I think it is number 272 in the gray hymnal there, the Nicene Creed. <clears throat> and what we're doing now is just selectively 
taking aspects of that, and this is by no means uh, exhaustive, we're just simply selectively taking aspects, meditating on them, training our minds, if you will, of some uncovering some truths that we really, I think, all know in a lot of ways that we really gravitate to, that help us to explain even why a lot of things matter to us, like our church or our family. That's what we're intending to do here as we sketch in the path of fostering conservative Christianity. So uh, last night, as we begin working this out, we talked about creation in light of the triune God and the revelation of Jesus Christ, and then mankind, what Jesus reveals ourselves to us. We begin to see in him what it really means to be a human person in relationship to God and what we were made for, what our entire existence is for. We see it supremely in Jesus. Now we want to, uh, again, very selectively, but keep working on here into the topic of salvation. If you're looking at the Nicene Creed, you can say that it's, you can see how it says that Jesus Christ, uh, we believe in Jesus Christ, that for us men and for our salvation, he was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and born. You see that he died on the cross and was buried and rose from the dead. We see that as we confess the Holy Spirit, we believe that he is the Lord and giver of life. We believe in the remission of sins, the resurrection of the dead, the life of the world to come. This is all directly flowing out of, I believe in God the Father Almighty. I believe in Jesus Christ, his son. I believe in the Holy Spirit. If that's really true, if that's the God who is, then this is the reality that flows from that. And it includes our salvation. So we we ended last night on the sobering note of a conservative mindset recognizes the effects of sin. And in that sense, it's a very anti-utopian kind of mindset. It doesn't have any sense that we're going to try to change the whole world with our grandiose plans and all of our schemes. No, mankind is sinful and it's going to take a whole lot more than what we can do to fix this problem. But I want to address a little bit now the whole aspect of God's salvation. We've already heard two nights ago, Athanasius expound on the union with Christ that is our salvation. Christ was crucified and raised again for the forgiveness of sins. Our salvation is the fulfillment of our creation. And I want us to note that we started with creation on on purpose uh, because salvation is not something different as if God started something else. Salvation actually fulfills what we were made for. We die with Christ, we are raised with Christ, and we walk in newness of life by the Spirit. And indeed, our salvation works out then by becoming like Christ. Pardon me. Our minds, our hearts, our characters, our actions become proportioned to Christ by the Holy Spirit. Second Peter describes it as adding to your faith virtue and to virtue knowledge and to knowledge, <clears throat> pardon me, self-control and to self-control steadfastness and to steadfastness godliness and to godliness brotherly affection and to brotherly affection love. Peter tells us this keeps us from being ineffective or unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. Truly knowing him is working out in our lives. 
in our salvation. And this is how God richly provides for us an entrance into the eternal kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Galatians, if we want to take the language from there, describes this as the fruit of the Spirit. This is what the Spirit does when he applies the work of Christ. He produces love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. So in Christ, we are free, as Galatians teaches us. We are free to operate in faith, working through love, looking for all the goodness and the truth, indeed the glory and the beauty of God, coming to know him. And in this way, our lives become all about worship. We delight in God as the fulfillment of all of our desires. <clears throat> and this gives me an opportunity to talk about here something that uh, Pastor Nathan even mentioned just a little bit as we were discussing the conference. and Because um, <clears throat> I want to talk about the way this historically worked into our lives as we delight in God as the fulfillment of all of our desires. This was known as faith-seeking understanding. <clears throat> faith-seeking understanding. In other words... This is a whole way of thinking about our human knowing, learning, growing, developing in Christ uh, that is, you might say, so different than what modern education aims at. But for the believer, for us as conservative Christians, education is discipleship. It is growing in Christ. Uh, In one of his sermons on the first epistle of John, Augustine made a famous statement. Do not seek to understand in order that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Centuries later, Anselm would articulate a similar mindset. For I do not seek to understand so that I may believe, but I believe so that I may understand. How did all of our conference start here, by the way, with the revelation of the triune God? How do we even begin to approach that? Remember, Gregory told us we have to approach this by faith. Or um, Athanasius said, faith gives fullness to our reasoning. This is what we're coming to know because that's the whole goal of life. Anselm thus prays, Lord, you who give understanding to faith, grant me that I may understand. And I believe this really is the mindset of a conservative Christian as he sees the outworking of his salvation. For he knows that the fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. This is in complete contrast to either rationalistic or enthusiastic ways of trying to know God and to walk with him. So let me give you another example from, uh, well, this one's not too far back, a little earlier in our own history as a nation, to illustrate a difference of a conservative mindset approaching learning in life versus what we're so often faced with today. And here I'm going to go back to our uh, pilgrim forefathers uh, in our nation, the pilgrims who so famously came to New England. You know all that story. I won't take time to rehearse it all here. But in their concern for um, knowledge, for seeking the Lord, They founded the first college in our nation, and someone probably knows right away what what was that one? Anybody know off the top of your head? Harvard. Yes, I heard somebody say it. Uh, Good. Harvard College. Excellent. 1636. 
when it was officially started, although it kind of floundered and took a bit to get off the ground. But um, in the 1640s then, they wrote about their precepts for the college and what this was going to be like and what was uh, um, why they were doing this, their understanding of, of this. And I'd like to read it for you here. They write, after God had carried us safe to New England and we had builded our houses, provided necessaries for our livelihood, reared convenient places for God's worship and settled the civil government. One of the next things we longed for and looked after was to advance learning and perpetuate it to posterity, dreading to leave an illiterate ministry to the churches when our present ministers shall lie in the dust. And so here are some of the rules and the precepts that are observed in the college. One, I have to include this one just for fun. When any scholar is able to understand Tuli, that would be Cicero as we usually call him today, or such like classical Latin author extempore and make and speak true Latin in verse and prose and decline perfectly the paradigms of nouns and verbs in the Greek tongue, let him then and not before be capable of admission into the college. So you had to learn your Latin and Greek before you came to college and then you could get in, right? <clears throat> But here's what they say, number two, and this is what's more germane to our purposes here tonight. Let every student be plainly instructed and earnestly pressed to consider well. The main end of his life and studies is, pardon me, to know God and Jesus Christ, which is eternal life. This is the whole reason why you study. John 17, 3. And therefore to lay Christ in the bottom as the only foundation of all sound knowledge and learning. And seeing the Lord only giveth wisdom, let everyone seriously set himself by prayer in secret to seek it of him. Harvard's come a long way since their founding. They say in the third precept, actually, everyone shall so exercise himself in reading the scriptures twice a day that he shall be ready to give such an account of his proficiency therein, both in theoretical observations of the language and logic and in practical and spiritual truths, as his tutor shall require, according to his ability, seeing the entrance of the word giveth light. It giveth understanding to the simple. In other words, folks, they understood all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are found in Christ. There are wonderful and glorious treasures to be found in our Lord Jesus Christ. And when we study anything, ultimately we're studying him. This is what we want to know. Proverbs 2 tells us to seek wisdom like it's hidden treasures. And when you have found it, where will you discover that it lies? In Jesus Christ. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father except by me. Jesus doesn't say here, in fact, that he has the truth, but that he is the truth. So just consider that statement for a minute. There is no wisdom and no knowledge that is not found in Christ. So whether men know it or not, or whether they'll admit it or not, everything that can be counted as knowledge is found in him. Every intellectual investigation takes its bearings from Christ. Christ is the light of life, and in your light do we see light. Everything we see, touch, taste, smell, hear, forms an interlocking system of knowledge that reveals Christ. Or to cite an older churchman, Maximus the Confessor, everything remains in its very being 
bound without confusion to everything else through the single enduring relationship of all to their one and only source. Everything brings us back to Christ. Christ is truth. He grounds truth. All knowledge is connected to Christ. So if we understand Christ aright, then we understand the world aright and we understand ourselves aright. Furthermore, when we recognize that all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden in Christ, we come to see that knowledge is personal. Knowledge is not merely data, is it? Uh, Your Google search engine has absolutely no knowledge. None whatsoever. Artificial intelligence, as it's often called today, has no knowledge. Because knowledge belongs to a living soul. Knowledge is not even, uh, pardon me, comprehended by knowing how to do things, if by that is merely merely manipulating things in order to get what you want. Knowledge in its fullest sense comes about when reality indwells the knower. One man has said that knowledge is a kind of communion between knower and known. And that's why knowledge is inseparable from love, ultimately. All the characteristics that go into true love go into true knowledge. Knowledge is a loving inhabiting of truth and goodness in beauty. And in knowledge, there is personal presence and communion. Uh, What is it like to know a friend? Now we're talking about a real kind of knowledge. And we see this because in Christ are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. And once this loving realization dawns upon us, we begin to see education itself in an entirely different light than our society around us. Uh, Educare is to lead into fullness of life. Education simply is being led to know Christ. Ever stop to think about education that way? Leading people to know Christ. It's when you're being educated, it is receiving Christ. It is giving ourselves to God and receiving his gifts to us. And that's why education is essentially a religious task. Furthermore, Jesus Christ provides the basis in reality, which explains why education is good. Without him, education devolves into taking and using the world for our own purposes. It's a power play. But if the world is objectively good, as the person of Jesus Christ reveals, and it will be redeemed, as the work of Jesus Christ reveals, then loving knowledge of this world is truly worthwhile. And it's truly fulfilling, even though it's not an end in itself. Loving knowledge of the world is leading us to loving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Let me pause right here and just give a word of encouragement or exhortation uh, to you parents here tonight. Parents, you are the front line for education. You won't be the only educator in your children's lives, but you really are the front line for building a counterculture of love in Jesus Christ. You have that responsibility from God to be the primary education of of your children. So let me encourage you to seize the opportunity to lead your children to know Christ. Invest yourself in it. It really is a worthwhile task to invest yourself in. Give yourself to your children by giving them knowledge and making sure it's pointing them to Christ. Uh, and if, if that 
task seems to overwhelm you today, there are multitudes of resources available to you. Uh, And as as I'm sure many of you know and even work on amongst yourselves, uh, the means are available and you really can do it. Trust Christ and teach your children. Your fellow believers are here to help you do it. We really need true reformation in education today. <clears throat> we need Christians to grasp what life is in Christ and to teach like it and to learn like it uh, and to stop being satisfied with what the world system around us offers us in terms of ed- education. I run into far too many Christians and I try to challenge them myself who, who think along this line, well, I went through the normal school system and I'm okay, Right? Sometimes I want to be a little bit snarky and say, well, maybe you're not as okay as you think you are because that's all you know. But I usually try to put it more in terms of Christ, right? Did you, were you trained to know Christ? Or do you have to do all this remedial training now from the first 30 years of your life because you never really got what all that was for? Why, why keep repeating that with the next generation? How about let's Christians by faith step forward and say, there is real goodness and truth here and we can train our children up in it and it will be good. So let me encourage you to do that. I think that's a conservative kind of fostering conservative Christianity. It's that seeing Christ and then educating for life in Christ. Why? That simply is the outworking of our salvation. This is a gift God is giving us in Jesus Christ. He is calling us to know him. And the knowledge of Christ is eternal life. So I would encourage you to do that. Let me just tick off a few more things here. I need to uh, move along fairly rapidly unless there are questions. Again, let me reiterate, you are free to raise your hand and uh, ask any questions uh, at any point here. Um. But I want to take off a few other things while we're still on this topic of working out, um, working out our salvation in Christ. I believe that uh, fostering a conservative Christianity, recognizing that our salvation comes from Christ, is accomplished by Christ, accomplished by the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, as he communicates himself to us, leads to a deep dependence upon God's providence. A deep dependence upon God's providence in our lives. Now this reprises some things I touched on before, so I'm just going to keep it short here. But there's a real patience to a conservative mindset in how we go about things. Again, contrasting the technological ontology of a liberalism. A patient, a patient endurance. Are the scriptures uh, replete with encouragements to endurance? This is the way your salvation is going to work out. Uh, keep trusting, keep uh, going forward, faith working through love. And it's going to show up, uh, excuse me, show up in prayer. Praying without ceasing. Uh, Again, it's part of that humility, it's part of that dependence, it's part of that trust, it's part of that love. The whole nature of our relationship with God is going to come out in a life of prayer if you want to foster a conservative mindset. So let me just encourage you as a church and you as families, pray without ceasing. If you want to foster a conservative mindset, parents, pray with your children from the time 
they come into this world. Husbands, wives, pray with one another. Fellow church members and fellow believers, pray together, always. Pray in your closets, pray in church. Never stop doing that. And you are fostering a conservative mindset when you do that. A life of dependence. This also means that the uh, conservative mindset works out in a real sense of stewardship from what God gives us. A sense of honor and gratitude to what God has provided. And ultimately, an endeavoring to lay up treasure in heaven. The life of the world to come. A conservative mindset never forgets that that really is where we're going. This world is not all there is. What we see, what we can do, what we can control here isn't the whole story. And we keep seeking that life of the world to come. There's been in Christianity, maybe in the last couple decades or so here, you might say a kind of a a push to reclaim the goodness of creation and the importance of life in this world and things of that nature. There's some good things about that. Um some important things that our faith does teach us. It just does come with sometimes a little bit of a temptation to forget that really the whole focus of our faith is still the life of the world to come. It isn't here, ultimately. Just some thoughts there, working this out. But this leads me then to an aspect of the old path that I want to park on for a while, and I'm going to just enter into it today, tonight here, because I believe it is severely misunderstood by many Christians, and that's the church. You see in the Nicene Creed that it's uh, we confess one holy, Catholic, and apostolic church. <clears throat> so much we could say about this, and I'll probably get to uh, meddling here in a little bit, um, but let me just start our thinking off with this here. Jesus Christ is the way. That's how we started this conference, right? Jesus Christ is the way. Now, the church is the body of Christ. If we put those things together, those concepts together, the church is intrinsically connected to the way. You you can't make it something else but intrinsically connected to the way. Or let me say it this way. The church simply is the way life in Christ works. In the context of the Nicene Creed, the natural development that the Creed follows is from Christ, his person and work, through the Holy Spirit, to the church. That's right where it goes, as it should. That's a seamless garment. Now let me quote a man I've quoted already here, I think last night, uh, Peter Lightheart to start us thinking about this a little bit more. He's written this in an essay last year. A genuinely penetrating critique of liberalism must start from the universal Christian confession of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church. Does that surprise you at all? I hope it doesn't, actually. If we're going to start a critique, a penetrating critique, he says, and he's referencing other political thinkers that are even known as conservative, Um, in this realm we need to start with this universal Christian confession of the one holy Catholic and apostolic church he goes on the church isn't merely another social institution 
but the family of the Heavenly Father, the body and bride of the incarnate Son, the temple of the Spirit. Through the Word, the Spirit gathers and knits us together. In the waters of baptism, we're made members of Christ and one another. At the table, we become one body because we all partake of the one loaf that is the one body of Christ. Based on what we've said so far, if we're tracking with, following this path of life in Christ, we should see that the church is the true community for humanity. It is not merely an adjunct thing. Uh, some of you here are in college, I know, and uh, typically in colleges today, if you take something like a sociology class, you will study you know, all different facets of human society is the way sociologists study them. <clears throat> but one thing you'll notice they do <clears throat> pardon me, is they, uh, they'll have a section in there on religion, something along the line of religion, and they'll include all the different religions of the world or in your society, and they'll talk about churches in there too or something like that. And, um, <clears throat> and then they'll go on to something else, and they'll talk about a different aspect of life and a different aspect of life. Um, I would just submit to you, if you're in one of these classes, you should recognize that that's a fundamentally wrong way of looking at the world. The church isn't just one thing among others that happen to be going on in the world. It can't be categorized as, <clears throat> well, here's our economic life, and you know, here's our political life, and here's our social customs and the things we do, and, and then here's our religious life over there, and that's that aspect if you want to pay attention to that. If you don't, that's fine. Everything else is still the same. That's actually a fundamentally wrong understanding of humanity. In fact, when we come to understand ourselves, and this is why we started with creation and, human, and mankind, um, our understanding of the church should actually be comprehensible within our understanding of the very reason for our existence. We are embodied persons who are the, in the image of God. We are made to relate to God, to be his representative rulers and his kingdom provided for his blessing. Uh, we are homo adorans, sometimes called worshiping creatures, priests before God. Life is a living sacrifice of love, eating and drinking before the face of God. We were made for community as Adam and Eve and family develops and... Uh, Households, brides, brides and bridegrooms, children, brothers and sisters. We were made to form cities. We were made to form peoples. And you know what? When the church is revealed in the fullness of time in God's redemptive plan, there is no formal definition given of the church. You won't start reading in the Bible and then all of a sudden say it says, oh, and then now there's this thing called the church and let me tell you what it is. Actually, it just starts, shows up. <laughs> Jesus just says things like, I will build my church and the gates of hell or Hades will not prevail against it. Wow. And then he says a couple chapters later that um, if your brother sins and you have this problem, then go and tell it to the church. And then we start reading um, Paul's epistles and we learn about how this came about or the book of Acts and but there's no formal definition given right away. But God intentionally gave us images which show us, I think, more powerfully than any formal definition what the church is. <clears throat> think about what I just talked about that we are as people. 
all those things we just listed, now think about these things that are all listed in Scripture or revealed in Scripture. The church is the body of Christ. The church is the bride of Christ. The church is the temple of God. The church is a royal priesthood. The church is the family of God. It is a holy nation. We are citizens of the new Jerusalem. The church is the people of God. I mean, when you see these images of the church, you might just begin to think that the church is exactly the kind of community mankind was created for in order to glorify and enjoy God forever. And that's the point. The church is what mankind's life looks like in Christ. So just to give an intimation, maybe a really simple, simplified definition of the church, for our purposes here tonight, we could talk about it as God's new creation community in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. The church is not something adjunct to our existence as humans. It is the very form that our human society takes when it is fulfilled in Christ. And if it's true that the church is the new creation community in Christ, then union with Christ is of her essence. That's why repeatedly the New Testament speaks about believers being in Christ. Christ creates in himself one new man, Ephesians 2.15. He shares our nature and we are joined to him by the Spirit. In him you also are being built together into a dwelling place of God by the Spirit, Ephesians 2.22 exactly what we saw in the confession. Christ, Spirit, the church. Furthermore, if the church is the new creation community in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, then it is spiritual in nature. Which, by the way, spiritual means uh, of the Holy Spirit. Her essence requires the Holy Spirit present in power to unite people to the triumphant Christ. And this implies the church is not sourced in man, but in the triune God. Like all of God's work, it does not arise from man's will or man's ability. Jesus is the one who builds it. It cannot die. It's a mystery that had to be revealed through the disclosure of the God-man, the seed of the woman, the last Adam, the Messiah, the Davidic king, the priest after the order of Melchizedek. And it could not come into existence until Jesus died, rose, and ascended to glory in victory to pour out his spirit on all flesh. And only comes about through those who are crucified with Christ and raised to walk in new life. In the realm of the spirit, we are all baptized with the purpose that we become one body. 1 Corinthians 12 tells us, we all drink of one spirit. So the energy, the life force, if you will, for the ministry of the church is given by the Spirit, which 1 Corinthians 12 expounds upon. And it's actually that spiritual nature of the church, which is the reason for the creedal declaration that we've just read. She is one, holy, Catholic, and apostolic. Because the church is the new creation community in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, she is one, both in the sense that there is one church, there is only one church. Ephesians 4, 4, there's one body. <clears throat> Pardon me. 1 Corinthians 12, 12 would also, there's one church and the church is one in the sense that this church is unified in Christ. It is Christ that makes this body one unified body. 
That's exactly the reasons for the exhortation, say in first, excuse me, Ephesians chapter four, where we are told to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you've been called, which means endeavoring to keep the unity of the spirit, that unity produced by the spirit. You didn't produce it. You didn't come up with it. You couldn't, but he did. And you keep that, right? The church is unified in Christ. There's one head. And as the church fathers themselves would often say, there's only one head, there's only one body. He doesn't have multiple bodies. He has one body which works together. That's a key understanding about the church. Because the church, secondly, is the new creation community in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, she is holy. She is set apart to God and thus composed of what does the New Testament constantly call the people of God in the church? The saints, right? You are holy ones set apart to God. That holiness is rooted in Christ. It's him sharing his holiness with us. Our sanctification is in Christ. And then it works out in the members of the body until ultimately the whole church is holy as Christ is holy. He cleanses his bride with the washing of water by the word. Because the church is the new creation community in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, she is Catholic. We talked about this word just a little bit the other night. Uh, and often, when you think of the word Catholic, you're probably taught to think of it in terms of meaning universal. <clears throat> I'd like to draw out our understanding of that just a little bit more even. In fact, it very closely follows on the heels of that um, unity that we just talked about and its holiness in Christ. Uh, to call it Catholic, call the church Catholic, simply means that it is a according to the whole. That's that term, Catholic. Um, and it's referring to the wholeness that is in Christ. In fact, sometimes you ought, you, you ought to, we won't take time to do this tonight, to think about the what Ephesians, Colossians, we touched on this in our morning sermon here on uh, Sunday, talk about in terms of the fullness of Christ, and we are filled in him. And we partake of all then that he is. Because in Christ all the fullness of God dwells, so through his body, his universal reconciling mission goes forth. <clears throat> Thus the church is Catholic. Again, this is not a statistical thing per se. It's not a geographical thing per se although it has very much implications for this. For example, um, is there any geographical boundary to the church? Say, you go here on this earth and you don't go there on the earth. No. What did Christ send us to do? Go out to all the earth and make disciples. All the nations make disciples. There can't be any boundaries to this because the church is Catholic, because Christ's mission is universal. This is the way it works. Her mission is to incorporate people from every tribe and language and people and nation into a worshiping assembly uh, in glory. Fourthly, because the church is the new creation community in Christ, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit, she is apostolic. <clears throat> uh, just as when we say apostolic, we're talking about the apostles, as you see in scripture there. Ephesians, again, since we're talking about that a lot, it seems, uh, says that the church is built on the foundation of the apostles 
and the prophets. Uh, She holds to the faith once delivered to the saints by the apostles of Christ and continues on in that apostolic truth and mission. The spiritual nature of the church means that she is the communion of the saints, as the Apostles' Creed will put it, that she is the community where the communication of the Spirit takes place and therefore legitimate representation of mankind takes place in Christ, all guarded and provided for by God's true judgment, the rule of Jesus Christ. There's some things that this implies for us here. And I'll see if I can uh, talk about some of these here tonight. One thing this should help us understand that I think is important to a fostering a conservative mindset. Realizing all this truth we've just talked about the church. She's in Christ. She's by the Spirit. That's of her her essence, her nature. She's not a man-made kind of institution at all. It means the church cannot be guaranteed by institutional organization, by an earthly vicar of Christ, by baptismal succession, or by creedal subscription even. Now, I encourage us to be creedal Christians. But I think we should recognize the church cannot be produced by whether gospel minimalism on the one hand, let's just make it all just, it's just about the gospel, or doctrinal maximalism on the other hand, by rigorous discipline and high ethical standards, or by contextualization and missional idealism. Life in the church is always and at every moment dependent upon the Spirit's new covenant ministry. We cannot depend upon our structure for what can only come from the Spirit. Life in the church cannot be practically conceived by the flesh, Romans teaches us. It can only be lived by those who set their minds on the things of the Spirit or who walk by the Spirit. It is by faith. Folks, when you come to this meeting today, when you came to worship the Lord together on Sunday, you come to this not because you see in this uh, what you put your trust in, but you come by faith because you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. You believe in the Holy Spirit and therefore you believe in the one holy Catholic church. It's an act of faith to be part of the church. John Donne, who I quoted earlier, the English poet, in his holy sonnet 18, I think rightly cried out, Show me, dear Christ, thy spouse, so bright and clear. He was reflecting on a situation. These people say they're the church, and these people say they're the church, and these people say they're the church. Lord, I need you to show me. It's an act of faith. The task of discerning the church that we may give ourselves to her in our Lord, uh, to... Uh, to our Lord is a task of faith, hope, and love. It's a task of moral discernment that is never finally complete until the bride steps forward, dazzlingly white and pure, on the great wedding day of the Lamb. You know, folks, we're often tempted, and this happens, I, I bring this up because sometimes this is a conservative type temptation. We're good at maybe picking out other people's temptations, but we've got to pay attention to our own. <laughs> uh, a conservative type temptation would be, think, okay, we've worked out a really rigorous and deep doctrinal statement. We've got it. Boom, we've signed it. It's part of our church. Okay, we've got good procedures in place for 
baptism and the Lord's Supper, which we'll talk about later, for church membership and church discipline. And, and we practice these things. Okay, we've got that in place. Um, or maybe maybe for this church here, well, we're Baptist and we're committed to what we believe. And, um, and there's a temptation to begin to rest in those things rather than in the life of the Spirit. And that's a, a dangerous temptation. We're not guaranteed, however great our doctrinal statement is, that doesn't guarantee the life of the church. It doesn't guarantee we're not going to go astray. Right? We've got to keep our eyes on where the real source of our life is. And because we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and believe in the Holy Spirit, that's why we believe in the church. Plus, that helps us, even as believers working through this uh, present evil world, when you see your church, (laughs) you see other churches that don't seem to look a whole lot like they're holy all the time and that they've always... (laughs) Do you give up on the church? You say, ah, it's not good enough. I got to go find, I, I got to find something somewhere that's, that's really what a church ought to be. No, that's a temptation we need to resist. Uh, because we approach this by faith. We come here trusting Christ. This is his plan. This is his purpose. This is what the Holy Spirit produces as she works out, as, as he works out the life of Christ in his, the bride of Christ. Uh, and we embrace that because we know it is good. I'd better stop right there because if I start anything else, I'm going to have to go for a while here to <laughs> uh, make it make sense. So I didn't even get a chance to start meddling too much. I, was, I got some good stuff here, to, uh, but we'll have to uh, bring that into play tomorrow evening, Lord willing. Questions? Comments, anything I can clarify even about what we talked about here tonight? How many of you would say, I've never really thought about the church being one holy Catholic and apostolic? Is that true for anybody here? Yeah? I would say a lot of times for us as Christians today, that's not the kind of thing we first think about when we think about confessing the church. Or um, I would encourage you to just take this as maybe a starting nudge and and think about these things and come to appreciate their significance in Christ um, and the confidence that gives us even in Christ's mission in his church, that this really is good. This is the work of the Holy Spirit and we can trust him to build his church and to accomplish that. We're going to talk about more. Uh, we can see foster that um, coming up here. Good. Any Final thoughts? Oh, Pastor Nathan. Yes. Uh, I think it was really helpful how you noted our dependence on God in salvation, thus implying our continued dependence on God in prayer, mm-hmm. and then uh, tying that to how the church works, mm-hmm. our dependence on God, faith in uh, trusting in him as we come to the church. Right. Um, any more words drawing out that theme? Uh, excellent observation. Um, I mean, we say that we are saved by faith, 
And that really is true. <laughs> our, our whole lives are lived by faith in him who loved us and gave himself for us. And we approach everything from that perspective then when we work it out. Um, which is precisely how we begin to see God's goodness worked out in the church. Uh, let me just, I guess, because this often happens, I'll, I'll say a couple more words about something I was just mentioning. Um, whenever you get into a church and get into it very deeply or there for very long, what do you start to notice? People have problems. <laughs> you know, there are flaws. Maybe your pastor isn't perfect and doesn't always get everything right. Maybe he makes decisions that bug you sometimes or uh, or you have disagreements. That person believes this and I can't believe they believe that. So um, I'm not sure. And... Uh, and you start life together in the body starts to have its challenges. Uh, that is the reality of life in this world, isn't it? If any of you have been in churches for very long, you've seen these kinds of things happen. And sometimes I've seen people uh, crushed spiritually through church splits, through uh, quarrels and disagreements and become very, very discouraged uh, in following Christ. Um, let me just encourage you, those things are going to come in, in this life. But when we're seeing the church in this light, and our confidence really is rooted and grounded in Christ, we've seen who he is and what he's accomplishing and yes, we don't put the blinders on about human sin and how much it affects us at all. But Christ is greater. Christ really is a savior for all that. He really is going to purify his bride. And it's precisely through your faithful response that Christ is going to be purifying his bride. You realize that? As you respond to those situations in faith, working through love, and the fruit of the Spirit comes out rather than the walking in the flesh, the works of the flesh, you really do start accomplishing exactly what Christ wants to accomplish. And it's, and it's good. Uh, so don't, don't be discouraged <laughs> uh, when you see that kind of a thing. Trust Christ. Come to church by faith. Every single time, come to church by faith. Be a part of the body by faith and uh, and have your eyes on Christ and you'll see a lot of good things that he's working out in you, in those around you, in your church, and by God's grace, even in other churches that he enables you to impact. So maybe just a word of encouragement or exhortation on that, that note, but uh, you're right. Dependence is very important. Good. Yes, Paul. Talking about the church being uh, kind of the center of society and mm -hmm. uh, our culture, but we live in a sinful world and not all our members of the church. Mm -hmm. It seems to me like in history the Catholic Church uh, tried to impose mm -hmm. the culture that Catholic Church was the state. Here's mm -hmm. Baptist, of course, a whole new separation of church and state. Uh, should we be more of a counterculture? Mm -hmm. <laughs> we, would, we would like to see the church influencing mm -hmm. and even dominating it, but we can't. 
good observation. Uh, I want to draw two aspects of that. Um, one is that, uh, yes, recognizing in this world that uh, the church is the heart of life. And even if human civilization, whether human civilization realizes it or not, um, that though we never uh, endeavor to impose that by force, we never lose the vision either of discipling all the nations so that should God bless as the spirit works and the spirit is sovereign to accomplish his purposes, the more the church is doing her job, the more she actually will start to become the center of human society. Um, and and I think men are often tempted to take shortcuts and try to impose things and uh, things like that. Uh, but nonetheless, I do think we can look back in our history, uh, let's just say in the West here, and you can see very tangible effects of the fact that the church started to become the center of how human civilization worked. Um, just while I was, since I was thinking about the New England Puritans earlier, and again, we can talk about all the ins and outs of them, but how did they set up their towns? The church is in the center. Here's the village green. Life revolves around the church. I mean, that was architectural, you might say, but it really was reflecting the way they thought. Life revolves around worshiping God. Life revolves around Christ and his church. And that's a good thing. I think we should thank the Lord wherever we see that kind of thing influencing um, society and and should pray for that in our day. I mean, it, it seems like a very far cry from us in our day. But sometimes I think uh, Christians are tempted um, to say, well, the church is just always going to be some kind of an underground society. It's just always going to be uh, this um, remnant that's never going to be very big or, or do much <laughs> in the world. Uh, well, that's that's up to the Lord. Sometimes in history that, that is the case. Um, but our marching orders, and that's what we should keep our eyes on, are to make disciples of all the nations. So that's what we do. And we trust that as we do that faithfully, God will, will actually start to see some of this happen. And it will be good even for the unbelievers around us, um, whether, they, whether they know it or not, uh, down to something as simple as we talked about Sunday morning, we talked about marriage and family. How did, how did uh, one man, one woman in covenant for life, how did that become the norm in Western civilization? Through Christianity. And did that benefit the whole world, even if they didn't acknowledge Christ? Yeah. It really did. Um, there's a lot of good things that can come about through that. So I think we should keep our sights set on that and recognize, um, well, pray toward that, work toward that, and, and see God work in that way. So yeah, great observations. Anybody else? All right, well, it's getting later tonight, and I think we all need to get a good night's sleep so we'll be ready to come back tomorrow. So I'll turn it over to you, Pastor Nathan. <laughs> Again, thank you to uh, Pastor Parker and his labors in directing our thinking. Um, 
I think uh, the, the the thing that I'm noticing as we're going through the conference is how central Christ is. And I think uh, Pastor Parker is trying to make that clear for us. Uh, Christ is at the center of how we live all of life. Christ is at the center of how our families should operate and think and be. Uh, Christ is at the center of how our churches should think and be, our salvation. Um, all of these things, uh, Christ being at the center, um, might might the Lord help us uh, to that end. Um, as you have questions, uh, so this is typically the, 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 the thing that happens. Um, unless you're a Pastor Griffith, some of you know him, unless you're a Pastor Griffith, uh, you're a little shy about putting up your hand and saying, this is my question. Uh, so don't don't uh, hesitate to catch Pastor Parker, uh, catch, catch others, Dr. Bowder, I'll recommend, um, catch them and ask the questions that you're thinking about, and uh, the Lord can direct and help us through those things. Uh, so as we conclude, let's look together to our God once more. Let's bow before the throne. Lord, we thank you for sending us your son. We thank you that in your son, we have life. We thank you that by faith, we have seen the joy of life in your son. And we pray that you might strengthen us to be faithful in living by faith, looking to your son. We pray this in his name. Amen.